0: mark chapter 12 verses 1 through 44 verses 1 through 13 and jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come again he sent forth other servants saying tell them which are bidden behold i have prepared my dinner My oxen and my fatling are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, and another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye, therefore, into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Burkett notes The design and scope of this parable of the marriage supper is to set forth that gracious offer of mercy and salvation which was made by God in and through the preaching of the gospel to the church of the Jews. The gospel is here compared to a feast, because in a feast there is plenty. Variety and dainties, also to a marriage feast, being full of joy, delight, and pleasure, and to a marriage feast made by a king, as being full of state, magnificence, and grandeur. To this marriage feast, or gospel supper, Almighty God invited the church of the Jews, and the servants set forth to invite them were the prophets and apostles in general, and John the Baptist in particular, whom they entreated spitefully and slew. The making light of the invitation, signifies the generality of the Jews' refusal and careless contempt of the offers of grace in the gospel. By the armies which God set forth to destroy those murderers are meant the Roman soldiers, who spoiled and laid waste to the city of Jerusalem, and were the severe executioners of God's wrath and judgment upon the wicked Jews. The highways signify the despised Gentiles, who upon the Jews' refusal were invited to this supper. And prevailed with to come in. The king's coming in to see his guests denotes that inspection which Christ makes into his church in the times of the gospel. By the man without the wedding garment, understand such as are destitute of true grace and real holiness, both in heart and life. In the examination of him, Christ says, Friend, how camest thou in hither? Not, Friends, why came ye long with him? teaching us that if unholy persons will press into the Lord's supper, the sin is theirs. But if we come not, because they will come, the sin is ours. The presence of an unholy person at the Lord's table ought not to discourage us from our duty, or cause us to turn our back upon that ordinance. The command to bind the unqualified person, hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness, plainly intimates that the condition of such persons as live under the light and enjoy the liberty of the gospel but walk not answerably to their profession, is deplorably sad and doleful. They do not only incur damnation, but no damnation like it. Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness. From the whole note one, that the gospel, for its freeness and fullness, for its variety and delicacies, is like a marriage supper. Two, that gospel invitations are mightily disesteemed. Three, That the preference which the world has in man's esteem is a great cause of the gospel's contempt. They went one to his farm and another to his merchandise. four, that such as are careless in the day of grace shall undoubtedly be speechless in the day of judgment. Five, that Christ takes a more particular notice of every guest that cometh to his royal supper than any of his ministers do take or can take. There was but one person without the wedding garment, and he falls under the eye and view of Christ. 6. That it is not sufficient that we come, but clothed we must be before we come, if ever we expect a gracious welcome to Christ's Supper. Clothed with sincerity, clothed with humility, clothed with love and charity. If we be not thus clothed, we shall appear naked to our shame, and hear that dreadful charge, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. See Luke 14, 17. Verse 14 For many are called, but few are chosen. Burkett notes This is our blessed Saviour's application of the foregoing parable to the Jews. He tells them that many of them, indeed all of them, were called, that is, invited to the gospel supper, but with few, very few of them, was found that sincere faith and that sound repentance which doth accompany salvation. Learn thence that amongst the multitude of those that are called by the gospel into holiness and obedience, few, very few comparatively, do obey that call and shall be eternally saved. Verses 15-17 through Then went the Pharisee, and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent out unto him their disciples with their Rhodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar, or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image, and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render, therefore, unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled, and left him, and went their way. Burkett notes, here we have another new design to entangle our blessed Savior in his discourse, where observe, one, the persons employed to put this ensnaring question to our Savior, namely, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were against paying tribute to Caesar, looking upon themselves as a free people, and the emperor as a usurper, but the Herodians were for it, Herod, being made by the Roman emperor, king of the Jews, was zealous for having the Jews pay tribute to Caesar, and such of the Jews as sided with him, and particularly his courtiers and favorites, were called Herodians. Observe, too, the policy and wicked craft here used in employing these two contrary sects to put the question to our Savior concerning tribute, thereby laying him under a necessity, as they hoped, to offend one side, let him answer how he would. If to please the Pharisee he denied paying tribute to Caesar, then he is accused of sedition. If to gratify the Herodians he voted for paying tribute, then he is looked upon as an enemy to the liberty of his country, and exposed to a popular odium. It has been the old policy of Satan and his instruments to draw the ministers of God into dislike, either with the magistrates or with the people, that they may either fall under the censure of the one or the displeasure of the other. Observe three with what wisdom and caution our Lord answers them. He first calls for the tribute money, which was the Roman penny, answering to seven pence, half penny, of our money, two of which they paid by way of tribute or pole money for every head to the emperor. Christ asks them whose image or superscription their coin bore. They answer, Caesar's. Render then, says Christ, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, as if he had said, The admitting of the Roman coin amongst you is a testimony that you are under subjection to the Roman emperor, because the coining and imposing of money is an act of sovereign authority. Now you have owned Caesar's authority over you by accepting of his coin as a current among you. Give unto him his just dues, and render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Learn hence that there is no truer paymaster of the king's dues than he that was king of kings. He preached it, and he practiced it. Matthew. 17, 27. And as Christ is no enemy to the civil rights of princes, and his religion exempts none from paying their civil duties, so princes should be as careful not to rob him of his divine honor as he is not to wrong them of their civil rights. As Christ requires all his followers to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, so should princes oblige all their subjects to render unto God the things that are God's. Verses 18 through 27. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother dies, and leaves his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her, and died, neither left he any seed and the third likewise, and the seven had her, and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering, said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they shall neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how the bush spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Burkett notes Our blessed Savior, having put the Pharisees and Herodians to silence in the former verses, here he encounters the Sadducees. This sect derived its name from one Sadik, who denied the immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the body, and angels and spirits. Here they propound a case to our Savior of a woman who had seven brethren successfully to her husband. They demand whose wife of the seven this woman shall be at the resurrection. As if they had said, if there be a resurrection of bodies, surely there will be of relations too. And the other world, if there be such a place, will be like this, in which men will marry as they do here. And if so, whose wife of the seven shall this woman be? They all having had an equal claim to her. Now, our Saviour, for resolving of this question, first shows the different states of men in this and in the other world. The children of this world, says our Saviour, marry and are given in marriage, but in the resurrection they do neither. As if Christ had said, after men have lived a while in this world. They die, and therefore marriage is necessary to maintain a succession of mankind. But in the other world, men shall become immortal and live forever, and then the reason of marriage will wholly cease. For when men can die no more, there will be no need of any new supplies of mankind. Observe, secondly, that our Savior, being got clear of the Sadducees' objection by taking away the foundation and ground of it, he produces an argument for the proof of the soul's immortality and the body's resurrection those to whom Almighty God pronounces himself a God are certainly alive. But God pronounces himself a God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, many hundred years after their bodies were dead. Therefore, their souls are yet alive. For otherwise, God could not be their God, because he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. From the whole, note 1, that there is no opinion so monstrous and absurd that, having had a mother, will die for lack of a nurse. The beastly opinion of the mortality of the soul and the annihilation of the body finds sadducees to profess and propagate it. Note 2. The certainty of another life after this, in which men shall be eternally happy or intolerably miserable, according as they behave themselves here. Though some men live like beasts, yet they shall not die like them, nor shall their end be like theirs. Note 3. The glorified saints in the morning of the resurrection shall be like the glorious angels, not like them in essence and nature, but like them in their properties and qualities, in holiness and purity, in immortality and incorruptibility, as also in their manner of living. They shall stand in no more need of meat and drink than the angels do, but shall live the same heavenly, immortal, and incorruptible life that the angels live." Note 4 that all those who are in covenant with God, whose God the Lord is, their souls do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies at the resurrection shall be sharers in the same happiness with their souls. If God be just, their souls must live, and their bodies must rise. For good men must be rewarded, and wicked men punished somewhere, either in this life or in another. God will most certainly, at one time or other, plentifully reward the righteous and punish the wicked doers. But this being not always done in this life, the justice of God requires that it be done in the next. Verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, And there is none other but he, and to love him with all the heart and all the understanding, and with all the soul, and all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, and no man after that durst ask him any questions. Burkett notes Observe here one a question propounded to our blessed Savior, and he answers thereunto. The question propounded is this, which is the first and great commandment. Our Savior tells them it is to love God with all their heart and soul, with all their mind and strength, that is, with all the powers, faculties, and abilities of the soul, with the highest measures and the most intense degrees of love. This is the sum of the duties of the first table. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. He doth not say equal with it, although the duties of the second table are of the same authority and of the same necessity with the first, as no man can be saved without the love of God, so neither without the love of his neighbor. Whence note 1, that the fervency of all our affections, and particularly the supremacy of our love, is required by God as his right and due. Love must pass through and possess all the powers and faculties of our souls. The mind must meditate upon God. The will must choose and embrace Him, and the affections must delight in Him. The measure of loving God is to love Him without measure. God reckons that we love Him not at all if we love Him not above all. Note two, that thus to love God is the first and great commandment, great in regard of its object, which is God, the first cause and the chief good, great in regard of the obligation of it. To love God is so indispensable a duty that God himself cannot free us from the obligation of it. For so long as he is God and we His creatures, we shall lie under a natural and necessary obligation to love and serve him. Great also is this command and duty in regard to the duration and continuance of it. When faith shall be swallowed up in vision and hope in fruition, love will then be perfected in a full enjoyment. Note 3 that every man may, yea, ought to love himself, not his sinful self, but his natural self, especially his spiritual self, the new nature in him. This it ought to be his particular care to strengthen and increase. Indeed, there is no express command in Scripture for a man to love himself, because the light of nature directs, and the law of nature binds, every man so to do. God has put a principle of self-love, and of self-preservation into all his creatures, but especially into man. Note 4, that as every man ought to love himself, so it is every man's duty to love his neighbor as himself. Not as he doth love himself, but as he ought to love himself. Yet not in the same degree that he loves himself, but after the same manner, and with the same kind of love, that he loves himself. As we love ourselves freely and readily, sincerely and unfeignedly, tenderly and compassionately constantly and continually, so should we love our neighbors also. Though we love them not as much as we love ourselves, yet must we love them as truly as we love ourselves. Note, lastly, that the duties of the first and second table are inseparable, namely, love to God and love to our neighbor. These two must not be separated. He that loveth not his neighbor, whom he hath seen, never loved God, whom he hath not seen. A conscientious regard to the duties of both tables will be an argument of our sincerity and an ornament of our profession. Observe, lastly, the favorable censure which our Savior passes upon the scribe. He tells him he was not far from the kingdom of God. Note here, one, some persons may be said to be far and farther than others from the kingdom of heaven. Some are farther in their regard of means. They want the ordinances, the dispensation of the word and sacraments. Others are far from the kingdom of God in regard of qualifications and dispositions. Of the former sort are all heathens without the pale of the church. They are afar off, as the Apostle expresses it, Ephesians 2:13. Of the latter sort are all gross and close hypocrites within the church, who, whilst they continue such, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Note, too, as some persons may be said to be far from the kingdom of God, So are there others which may be said not to be far, such as who have escaped the pollutions of the world, abstained from open and scandalous sins, are less wicked than the multitudes are, but are strangers to an inward, thorough, and prevailing change in the frame of their hearts and course of their lives. They had often said, I would be, but they never said, I will be the Lord's. When the work of regeneration is brought to the birth, after all, it proves an abortion. Lord, what a disappointment will this be to perish within sight of the promised land, to be near heaven in our expectations, and yet no nearer in the issue and event. Woe unto us, if this be the condition of any of us, who have all our days sat under the dispensation of the gospel. Verses 35-37 And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, Till I make thine enemies thy footstools. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Burkett notes, The Pharisee had often put forth questions maliciously unto Christ, and now Christ puts one question innocently unto them namely what they thought of the Messiah whom they expected. They reply that he was to be the son of David, that is, a secular prince, descending from David, who should deliver them from the power of the Romans and restore them to their civil rights. This was the notion they had of the Messiah, that he should be a mere man, the son of David, according to the flesh, and nothing more. Our Savior replies, Whence is it, then, that David calls the Messiah Lord? Psalm one hundred and ten, one. The Lord said to my Lord, "Sittest thou at my right hand?" How could he both be David's Lord and David's son? No son being the Lord of his own father. Therefore, if Christ were David's sovereign, he must be more than man, more than David's son. As man, so he was David's son; as God-man, so he was David's Lord. Hence, note one that although Christ was truly and really man, yet he was more than a bare man he was Lord unto and the salvation of his own forefathers. Note, too, that the only way to reconcile the scripture which speaks concerning Christ is to believe and acknowledge him to be God and man in one person. His Messiah as man was to come forth out of David's loins, but as God-man he was David's sovereign and savior. As man he was his father's son. As God he was Lord to his own Father. Verses 38-40. through 40. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplace, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Burkett notes, Observe here what it is our Savior condemns. Not civil salutations in the marketplace, not the chief seats in the synagogues, not the upper rooms at the feasts, but their fond affecting of these things and their ambitious aspiring after them. It was not their taking, but their loving the uppermost rooms at feasts, which Christ condemns. Observe, too, how our Savior condemns the Pharisee for their gross hypocrisy in coloring over their covetousness with a pretense of religion making long prayers in the temple and synagogues for widows, and thereupon persuading them to give bountifully to Corban, that is, the common treasury for the temple, some part of which was employed in their maintenance. Once we learn that it is no new thing for designing hypocrites to cover the foulest transgressions with the cloak of religion, the Pharisees made long prayers a cloak and cover for their covetousness. Verses 41 through 44. And Jesus sat over against the treasury, and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow is cast more in than all they that have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance." But she, of her want, did cast in all she had, even all her living. notes, As our blessed Savior sat over against the treasury, that is, the part of the court of the temple, where the korban, or chest, for receiving the people's offerings and gifts, were set, he observed and took notice of those that offered their oblations. And some that were rich offered very liberally. But a certain poor woman came over and offered two mites. Our Savior hereupon takes occasion to instruct his disciples in this comfortable truth, namely, that Almighty God accepts the will of those that give cheerfully, though they cannot give largely. This poor woman cast in more in respect of the inward affection of her heart and in proportion to her state than all those that were rich and wealthy had cast in before her, a mite to her being more than a pound to them. From the whole note, one, that the poorer, yea, the poorest sort of people, are not exempted from good works. Even they must exercise charity according to their abilities. Learn, too, that in all works of pious charity which we perform, God looks at the heart, the will and affection of the giver, more than at the largeness or liberality of the gift. If there be a willing mind, says the Apostle, Second Corinthians 8.12, it is accepted according to what a man hath, not according to what he hath not. 3 that a person ought sometimes to give what he cannot very well spare himself and be ready to distribute not only to his power, but even above and beyond his power. 2 Corinthians 8, 2 and 3.